Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Cross-platform applications are really helpful for many businesses as they increase the size of the available customer base and make it easier to write code that runs on anything. However, like anything else, there are always trade-offs. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the things that you're likely to run into when building cross-platform applications. Most of these issues are very similar across platforms. So it's worth going through the list so that you can do a better job of evaluating cross-platform frameworks when you're about to use them. But before we get started, Will, what's been crossing your platform this week? Crossing my platform this week. Honestly, not much. I've just been working a lot. You know, I'm trying to get ready for April 1st when I kind of kick off my New Year's goals. And I've got a lot of stuff to do. I mean, heck, I've got a whole post-it note that's like completely jammed with all the stuff I want to do before then because I wanted to actually make sure I have a task list for all the things. And uh, it's going to be pretty intense for the next, what, three or four weeks. And that's basically what I'm doing when I'm awake is dealing with that. That said, I have gotten a little bit of gaming in on the uh, Linux box. And every game so far has worked. And several of them are performing significantly better, and I don't know why. Because it's not got Windows running underneath of it. Maybe. Eating up all the resources. That's possible. It may also be like the Vulcan stuff, you know, whatever Steam's shenanigans that they do. I just thought that was interesting. I anticipated not being able to play most of my games ever again, and that's not what happened. So, pretty pleased with that. So, how about you? I don't really play PC games. And I have a Mac, so I mean, I guess I could play them on the Mac, but I just don't really do that. Yeah, you're more of a console gamer if you do anything. If I play anything, yeah, I'm more of a console gamer. And then I just got a Super Nintendo second controller that works <laughs> now. I still have my 8-bit NES. Yeah, I still have mine too. Although I have the connector for yours because it says BJ on it. Are there somewhere? Maybe. Yeah, I think. I don't know. I think they're gone. Well, they didn't keep up with the times. Like seriously, they could have, if they'd gotten into like the Raspberry Pis and the IOT stuff, they would still be in business. Yeah. But I asked, like I went in to get stuff to tinker with a Raspberry Pi and they're like, yeah, we don't carry that stuff. I was like, why not? This is the future. And they're like, nah. And yeah, guess what? I'm still tinkering around with Raspberry Pis and they ain't in business no more. Yeah. That was not good English, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you survived. They didn't. <laughs> Bad English or not. True that, yo. So I went to an Iraqi restaurant this past weekend. Good friend of mine at church is from Iraq and he was out of town on my birthday. So he called me up Friday night. I actually was on my way home from a date and uh, he called me up and wanted to take me out to lunch for my birthday. He's like, I'm sorry I missed it. I was out of town. I was like, yeah, don't worry about it, dude. So he took me to this this restaurant. It was really good. Like, we got the lamb kebab. 
That was awesome. There is quite a bit of crossover between Mediterranean and Middle Eastern foods. How did it compare to Uzbek? There were some similar items on there too. It's interesting. Like there's that whole region, like the Balkans, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, even to like the Eastern Europe. There's a lot of similar things, but they each kind of have their own like unique takes on it or stuff like that. Well, there's a lot of trade routes and a lot of empires that went back and forth in that area too. So there's, you know, there would have been a good mix for a couple thousand years at least. Oh yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of crossover, but then each one kind of has their own little unique things. The grape leaves there were phenomenal. I mean, just like you eat one and like the flavor just sort of exploded in your mouth. It was so good. I was here in town in Murfreesboro. So it was really good. You'll have to come out to it sometime. They also had a a little market next door and uh, we went there and uh, he got me some Turkish delight because he knows uh, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. So I'll tell you what was really funny though is he's taking some of our other friends from church there. And so we get there and he's like, have you ever had yogurt drink? Oh, uh, the Iranian stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got a recipe for that. The salty? Yeah, a little salty. I was like, yeah. He's like, where have you had it? Hey, Ron. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like uh, several different places, man. And he's like, no, you haven't had real yogurt drink. He's like, I'm going to get you some yogurt drink. I was like, all right, that's fine with me. I, I like it. And he's like, you know, apparently some of our other friends didn't. And so he ordered it. It came out and like in the bottle, not like poured out. And I'm like, I've had this exact brand, man. <laughs> yeah. I made my own. I made, you know, I made yogurt and I made a, made a batch of it. Cause yeah. you, can, you know, you can put like some mint in there. There's a lot of other flavors you can put in it. Yeah. So anyway, like I, I drank the whole thing. He's like, you really liked it. I was like, yeah. So he took a picture of me drinking it to send it to our friends. Be like, BJ liked it. <laughs> He'll eat anything. It is good though. Yeah. But BJ like, look, I'm referring to myself in the third person now. I like that style food too. Yeah. That whole region. Like I said, like I, I, mostly in the Balkans, Albania, but I also like Mediterranean and Middle Eastern foods and stuff like that. So like all of that stuff over there, just just amazing to me. It was a really fun afternoon. We did that. And like I said, went over to the, that he did spray me down with some like cologne stuff in the store. And I was like, dude, why did you do that stuff? Like it didn't smell bad, but like too much of it was like overbearing. Like I'm going to have to go wash this jacket now because of this. So but otherwise, it was just, it was fun hanging out with a friend. Saving money is hard, especially when you like international cuisine. Well, actually... It actually ends up being cheaper a lot of times, but yeah. Yeah, I was like, this place was actually less expensive than most other restaurants. I, if you like Thai food and sushi, though, you get burned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. Especially when you have friends who like them and you take them there for your birthdays. Yep. So... Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you to not only establish a real plan, but also to take action on that plan so that you can live your best life and actually do the things you want to do. No, like travel to the countries where you like the food. Right. Which would basically be every country, but that's just me. I like food. (laughs) I find eating to be favorable. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. With the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. 
Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. And best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. Now, what that means, guys, is he's not here to sell you something, but to guide you to a better financial situation. Yeah, it's kind of the same situation you had in the restaurant slash market with your friend. He wasn't trying to sell you something. He was trying to get you to be in a happier place. Yes. And think of it more like that if you need to know what a fiduciary is. Mm-hmm. So you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face. And he interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And you can learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Depending on your use cases, your application may need to work well on Apple, iPhone, Windows, Apple, Linux, (laughs) Apple, and various types of tablets, (laughs) iPads. Yeah, that's what I meant, probably. Yeah. (laughs) And that's just if you're looking at the U.S. market. International markets have lots of other options. This is part of the reason web applications are so popular. It's a way of making cross-platform concerns into someone else's problem. And honestly, that's a pretty rational approach because dealing with the quirks of dozens of desktop, mobile, and various tablets is often more than an application developer alone can or wants to handle. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, everybody's got a quirky friend, right? I am that quirky friend. Yeah, I know. But, <laughs> but you know what, you know, like you can have the quirky friend, but if all your friends are quirky and you have a party, it's a little much. Even if you're enjoying it, it's too much. What's really fun is when you invite a bunch of quirky friends and a bunch of straight-laced friends to the same party and just watch them interact. And pour the drinks. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that. Um, Me either. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was the same party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so a web application is often the way to handle this. But even with all the fairly recent advances in things like PWAs, you've got your desktop, you know, like electron type stuff, it still may not be sufficient for your client's needs. You know, in particular, if you're dealing with things like disconnected data, uh, memory or processor intensive applications, or just applications that use the file system, you know, or do something weird, even like database type stuff, you may need to run your application outside of a browser sandbox, or you may need to get somewhere in between there and native. And If you do need to support multiple platforms, building a cross-platform app is often the correct choice, both from a business and a development standpoint. It's funny, like uh, I'm thinking about a friend of mine, he's he's starting a kind of a coaching business for Christian entrepreneurs called Entrepreneur. I'm one of the the beta testers for his app and uh, he sent it out to me, gave me the code to, you know, to get the free membership and stuff and the sign up button wasn't working the first time. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. When you said Electron, that's what reminded me like it's like this cross-platform PWA kind of thing. Well, if it was an Electron and you clicked it yesterday, by today, it should have responded. Yeah. Well, it was an Electron because we, we talked about it and stuff. With 64 gigs of RAM. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it's, it's just a PWA thing. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I messaged him back. I'm like, hey, I finally got it to work, but here's what I had to do. And what, like six hours later, I think he sent out a text to the group was like, hey, we got it fixed. Thanks for the the input. It's not 
public yet because we're literally beta testing it right now. Yeah, well, you can't sign in. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, you yeah. can now. You, yeah. you got, he got it working really fast. But that's what we're here for was like to find that stuff. It's just, it's sort of funny that you're like, yep. And they had been testing it on a PC and it worked there. And that's how I got in. I, I went to the website on my Mac and I was able to get there, but on the phone, I wasn't. So, yeah. But, um, but like most things in life, there are trade-offs that you need to consider. By definition, any cross-platform framework that you use is going to mean another layer of abstraction between you and the system where you're running it. And all abstractions, every single one, leak. All abstractions are simplifications of more complex problems. While that simplification may be beneficial, you'll need to take very special care to make sure that you're not oversimplifying. And if that happens, then you're going to have to work around that. This is basically the core problem in cross-platform development. Yeah, it really is. And in this episode, we're going to discuss some of the things that you can run into when building an application to run on multiple platforms. In reality, to some degree, nearly every application does actually run on multiple platforms. The problem really comes down to whether platform differences are an actual problem for you or not. Even if it only needs to run on two slightly different versions of Windows 10, for instance, there can be something in there that breaks things in a way that you didn't anticipate. But in general, when we talk about cross-platform development, we're usually talking about disparate operating systems at the least, different hardware, and possibly even a fair bit of variance in how the user will interact with the system and things like security considerations, those kind of things. We're going to discuss some of the things you should consider when determining whether a cross-platform application is the right choice for what you're doing. In many cases, it will be, but the considerations we're offering here are things that you really need to think about beforehand and not get bitten by during the development process. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we're going to talk about is user experience or UX issues. Yeah. I really like pronouncing it UX because it really throws people off. It's so much fun. It's not a good user experience for them. I twitched a little bit inside. Yeah, I saw it. I, I, yeah. I, I could see the twitch. Yeah, very subtle, but you know. If you are writing cross-platform code, your user experience is not going to look like the user experience of multiple platforms unless only your backend is cross-platform. Right. So if you're writing for Windows and Mac, you know, it's going to either look like Windows or going to look like Mac or going to look like something else. But if it is actually truly cross-plat, right? Because like that's one of the main differences is the UX. Yeah. No, I've, I've seen that. Um, VS Code is like that, where it's like, yep, I've got it on my Mac, but other than a couple of little things, it basically looks the exact same as Windows. Even the same shortcut keys work, like the Mac shortcut keys and the Windows shortcut keys work on it. Yeah, well, because they probably realize developers are going to switch back and forth and get really irritated. Yep. Because, you know, we're... <laughs> let's just say that we are power users with all that entails, plus prima donnas. I really wish there was a uh, a way to just be like, to go into Windows and go, hey, change all the shortcut keys, like the Mac user setting or something. Like, hey, instead of it being Windows, make them all like the Mac shortcut keys and just make my life easier. So I only have to... There's probably on, well, 
I'd say on Linux with KDE, you can save and export those settings. So there's probably some dude that has done that. Probably. If I looked it up, I just wish it was built into Windows so I didn't have to like do extra because it's a VM. So it sometimes gets wiped and reset. So, yeah. So what ends up happening because these different platforms are going to have different features, you either have to go with the lowest common denominator or you're going to be constantly probing and trying to figure out whether something is supported before you use it. And usually it's going to be a mix of both of those. Yep. This can also mean that certain forms of user interface interaction are different between different platforms. More complex things, especially like gestures, may wildly differ on different platforms. I'm sorry, I almost mispronounced that word because in Albanian, the G does not make the J sound. (laughs) What does it make? Just the G. Like all letters only make one sound. And so I was like, I started to, I'm like, wait, no, that's the wrong pronunciation. I have that problem in Russian with general instead of general. (laughs) Yeah. No, if you put a J beside the G, it would be perfectly fine. (laughs) (laughs) Multilingual problems. Well, I mean, yeah, we're running on multiple platforms, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. If you think of a language as a platform, there's a lot of analogs to this. Uh, You know, honestly, that. That is really true. That's really true. The next is performance issues. Typically, if you want the best performance from a platform, you'll need to use at least some native components to accomplish this. And as a result, you'll often see performance problems crop up in the communication channel between the native and non-native components because it's a communication channel. Compilation can also be an issue. As you face a trade-off between optimization per platform and platform variant and actually being able to get a build through the pipeline in a reasonable amount of time because sometimes it can take quite a long time to do a build yeah you know what i mean yeah like you know you you pop open android studio you copy a bunch of npm directories you know (laughs) yeah you know you wait for molten iron to anneal you know those kind of things (laughs) i was thinking more like You know, you start the build, drive to the gym, work out, take a shower, come back, realize you didn't hit enter. (laughs) I have never done that. Yeah. This week. I did that on on Git uh, earlier. So I've got to actually open up the other machine and go on to it, apparently. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the compilation thing is something I think a lot of developers don't think about especially for more like release cycles. I mean, dev Mm -hmm. cycles are bad enough, but like there's other people downstream from you that are getting hit by this too. It's not just you. And you may get additional performance issues from sandboxing features that try to protect the system against untrusted code. You have to be especially careful of things like memory allocation in excess of expectations. You know, this is something I've seen in in a few different cases, because that often means that you're actually getting a copy of the data that is used on the native side versus a reference to it. So if you, you know, your RAM looks like it's double what you think it would be, that may be what happened. And this can hurt performance. And by the way, this happens in managed framework code too. I've seen this on .NET when dealing with some of the imaging libraries. Because you're like, oh, I'll pass this window handle here and get an image object, or not a window handle, an image 
handle and get a .NET image object. But what it actually does is it makes a copy. And that's what you're working with. And if you don't know that, you don't deallocate the other one. So the next thing is oh, something that's so much fun. App store issues. Because Apple is an absolute pain if you're a developer. But uh, it's kind of nice if you're a user, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because uh, you can get a little sense of more safety. You know, if they're ripping you off, they at least planned it well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. On most of your mobile platforms and even some desktop platforms like Windows tried to do this. Well, and Apple's tried to do it. Yeah, it just it's too easy to just download stuff from the, the Internet to. To really be great at it on desktop, but still, it's not easy to just create code and hand it out to your users. Platform vendors tend to want to exert some control and usually collect some money by verifying that your software is appropriate and a lot of other things. I know there were some issues with the way that Apple was handling their... Like censorship type stuff and... Not censorship, but like the way that in-app payments were hand, were being handled. Yes. But part of the reason they were doing that was to make money, but also part of it was people were getting ripped off by some of the apps and they're like, hey, it passed through the app store because it didn't have anything overt in it, but it was like where it sent you for the in-app purchases that was causing these problems. Yeah, or they push an update that has something. I totally get it. There's good reasons for that. But because there is an ecosystem of this stuff, different app stores are going to have different requirements and you have to meet the requirements in each store in order to use that platform in most cases or in order for your users to easily use it. Like you can sideload and that kind of stuff in some cases too, but you probably don't want your users actually doing that. And that can be a, a bit of a problem, right? Because those app store requirements may include, you know, considerations for performance. They probably will. Your functionality security, those kind of things. Um, I've even seen cases where app stores have said, we've got too many apps that do this one thing, so we're not approving yours just because. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Which that ought to be like anti-monopoly at that point. Like, you got to consider me for the pipeline just like you got to consider everybody else. Because cross-platform frameworks often include a fair bit of wrapper code to work with native functionality, Performance issues can be a major source of problems. Yeah. So they, you know, they try to run it on the app store and either it crashes or it's really slow and they go, Hey, this is not sufficient for our stuff, or it does something at the native level that they don't like, or you're not asking for the right permissions. You're asking for too many permissions. This kind of stuff gets really complex, really, really fast. Speaking of things that add complexity, another little fun wrinkle that you will run into doing cross-platform stuff is you're basically going to be waiting for new features a lot. The SDKs for individual platforms tend to surface new features really quickly compared to cross-platform frameworks because, hey, you know, that's they only have one code base to deal with. And if your competitors are using native code, they may be able to roll something out more quickly than you can because they can actually call it directly, whereas you got to wait for somebody else to call it and then you call that. If some platforms have a new feature, but others do not, this can also complicate your plans. I've seen this happen in the mobile world before. Either you have to wait for the new feature to be available on all platforms or you have to manage feature flags 
and the code to support them. So then you get, oh, hey, all the Android users have this, but the iPhone users don't. Right. Or all the Android users up till, I don't even know what their latest, Turkish Delight edition. I suppose a jelly bean or what? I mean, I'm sure it's some kind of confectionery, right? Sure, why not? Yeah. And you, you get split. I will tell you, you probably just need to go ahead and bite the bullet and get feature flag capabilities kind of baked into the way you do things so that you're used to it when you have to do this because it's when, not if. Unless you're doing something extremely simple that doesn't change. But that said, if it's if it's early on, this can be a lot of overhead for something that maybe you aren't expecting. Also, just because the cross-platform framework supports a new feature on two different platforms doesn't mean that QA interactions with that feature are going to be accomplished in a cross-platform manner. So, you know, for instance, any of the UI automation, like they may do it differently. You know, it looks the same or it has, it's using user interface idioms that are for that platform. And when you program it, it looks the same to you as a developer, but when QA has to look at it, it's different. So be aware of that too. So the next one is that native integration is more difficult. It's not very likely that you can build a large, complex, cross-platform application without some interaction with the platform native code. This can be for performance reasons or just because of limitations in your cross-platform framework. But you're probably going to have to touch the native code at some point. And you know, native code is going to introduce maintenance complexity because, hey, this is something that, that branches. Like I'm on a different platform. My calls are all different. I've got maybe conditional compilation in the mix. I you know, probably have feature flags in the mix. I may even be doing things like probing the native to figure out what it can take. Like, does it support X feature because, hey, they're, they're doing rolling releases and, you know, I don't know that all my users have that yet. It gets really, really complex really, really quickly. So you're going to want to limit how much of this you use, but at the same time, you're going to probably have to use some just to make the app not suck. And what, over time ends up happening is, is that fewer and fewer of your developers actually touch the native code because it's unwieldy and it's not like the rest of the system. And your bus number just went way down when that happened. Passing data back and forth between your app and native code is going to be riddled with potential performance issues that are harder to see in the code. For instance, things like network calls serialization boundaries and memory copies, they may look like simple function calls, but this can hide what's really going on at the hardware level. Yeah. And by the way, this is something that happens to people in a non-cross-platform scenario as well that everybody here is probably dealing with, and that is microservice calls. Because lots of things, you know, they'll wrap it and it's like, oh yeah, you know, just call out this, this microservice, but it looks like a function call, but it's actually a network call. And that's how you introduce performance problems that are hard to see, you know, with a cursory explanation without like lower level debugging tools. And the same thing happens here. It's just inter-process communication on the device. I had that where some stuff had been built by more of a mid-level developer, I mean, you know, hitting that issue of a little bit of overcomplicating things, but this was 
a while back. But uh, anyway, we had to go back and refactor a lot of it because it was like, all right, for each little component on the page, it was making a call to the API across the wire. And it's like, you know, we could just send all of that in one call. Yep, I'm dealing with that now with GraphQL. Oof. Yeah. This is just API calls to a, to a .NET API, a .NET Core API, but still. But yeah, it's just like, it's not like MVC where you're kind of like right there, but it's like, this is making a call from one server to another. So yeah, they're both on the same side of the firewall, but it's still a call and that's still taking time. And like, the other thing is several of those things that were being called were like, hey, the API for this application was just an intermediary to call another API. It was a gateway. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so it's like, all right, if we just put all those together, we can make one call across and save a lot of time, like seriously lowered the load time for that page when we did that. Well, yeah. And there's also the thing of what happens when there's errors in there across a communication channel like that. The other thing a lot of people don't think about is, is the uh, serialization boundaries. Right. So like I've got some complex data structure that, hey, I may have just passed a reference to it, but that sucker's got to serialize. And it depending on what you're doing in there, you may be calling a whole bunch of stuff that you don't know about to take that object and put it into a text stream to check it over you know, some communication channel. Been bitten by that one plenty of times without cross plat. The next one is that development tools tend to be a bit more limited when you're doing cross platform than what the same functionality would be on a native tool. Because the development tool is also cross-plat. It has all the problems you do, plus a compiler. It's going to have to deal with multiple platforms at runtime rather than just one at a time. Whereas like you're having to go, okay, I build it and it works on this platform and not, you know, not this one and this one concurrently. They don't necessarily have those same kind of rules on them. And so like that is something I would not want to be having to write. If I was working on that, that's the only thing I would need to be working on, period. Because that's that's going to be super nasty. So just bear in mind that your dev environment is probably not going to be as nice as you would like it to be. Also, uh, these tools, by definition, are going to rely on a massive lattice work of other tools in order to emulate the runtime environment. I mean, if you you think about it, like I'm just thinking, hey, how does my website look on mobile and like emulating that? But if you're like like I run Windows VM to do Windows development on a Mac, but like if you have to be like, okay, I've got to emulate all these things. And I know there are some uh there's some companies that will actually test on like you can send them your stuff and they will like record testing on different devices like real devices not not emulated but i mean there's so much stuff that i mean you don't even think about like you know i've seen things with like image file formats on windows where on the windows platform code to deal with it you had to hand it a seekable stream to load it i think wmf is like that but then on something else it was just like their platform code was like, no, we're just going to load it all straight up and then deal with it in memory ourselves. So you just give it the file 
path. And those little differences don't sound like much until it's layered under the guts of a browser or under the guts of something else, you know, some image processing software. And that abstraction will leak at some point. And in your dev tools, it may leak well before it gets to you. This also tends to mean that you can't really test your code in the development environment, at least not on everything. And you actually need to test on real devices because that's not, you know, you're getting an emulated environment, which you cannot trust necessarily that the tool vendor actually covered everything. Realistically, this is also true of any platform, right? Like something running on the developer machine. There's a reason we have Docker, right? So that we can't have that discussion. But, you know, just because it ran on your box doesn't mean it's going to run somewhere else. And you actually have to test on a real deployment environment. This is the same thing. It's just there's multiple different ones. So next, documentation and support gets a lot more complex. Oh, my goodness. Because your app is not likely to be exactly the same on multiple platforms, your support team is going to need to be able to diagnose problems on all the platforms that you're on and potentially several different iterations of each of those platforms. Yeah. Bear in mind, your installer is different. If nothing else is any different, the installation file format is different. Yep. And by the way, something else is going to be different. (laughs) I just hate to tell you that. And, you know, you think about like what a support person has to deal with as far as sort of a branching logic tree to kind of go through and go, okay, is it this? No. Is it this? No. Now there's multiple platforms in the mix, each with their own trees that somewhat overlap for things that the support person probably doesn't understand, but they're probably going to know until those things don't overlap later. It really, really explodes it. And this is something that developers are really, really bad about not noticing is, hey, these are people that are, you know, your frontline support people are getting nailed by this. And it's really easy to ignore it. And when you write documentation, it's also going to need to reflect how things work on multiple platforms while keeping everything up to date. And, you know, like you start to think about, okay, well, this piece of text can go in these three platforms, but it can't go in this other one. But it's referring to this figure that's different in these two. And you get some real nasty CMS type issues that, that start getting in there that you would have never anticipated. This is complexity that balloons after the fact. Now, if your code is running on platforms that automatically update, this also means that your support team will need to stay ahead of any updates. That means that your non-support team will need to be testing on upcoming platform versions before they are generally available. Which means that everybody needs to be watching for those. And this is why, like, when macOS has a, a new, like, major version, I will usually wait until the first minor version of it comes out because by that point in time, everybody's gotten gotten used to it. And every now and then I have to update my uh, uh, virtual machine, uh, which means paying for a new license when you go to the new version of it. The minor version updates they'll send, but upgrade, I guess, would be the term for that. Right. Even though it's really probably not an upgrade to you as far as you're concerned because it's like... it's still works the same, like a pain for you to not break it. So it's, it's really more like the mob. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but this stuff gets, it gets really complex and it is worth considering 
like, how are we going to do this when we're talking about doing cross-platform? Um, that's one of the things on this podcast we do try to kind of get into is what stuff am I breaking that I'm not responsible for? <laughs> All the things, right? Yeah. Well, hopefully. Otherwise, you don't have any power and you should accrete some more, right? Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, speaking of accreting power, another area that this practice tends to shine is what it does to your QA and release cycles because those are about to get much more complex. With multiple platforms, you have to test on each platform. And while many cross-platform tools advertise that they work transparently across platforms, you'd be an absolute idiot to trust this ever, especially if you're doing anything with native code. Like when they say, hey, it works transparently, think like at best 80%. And that's really, really stretching it. And you probably shouldn't trust that over a longer time period because this is not, if they could do it transparency, transparently, it would be the same platform, right? Like by definition, this is not something that can happen. (laughs) Releases and associated assets for installation are going to have to be more complex, more numerous, and frankly, just going to require more testing. Yeah. What's weird about all this stuff, too, is the extra process that the QA people have to have, too, right? Because previously, you know, if you just pushed for one platform, your QA dude is going, okay, hey, this login form, the sign-in button is broken. Doesn't work. Okay, now they got to go, hey, it doesn't work on Windows, but it does work on Mac. Why is that, right? Like, there's all this stuff that you got to consider, and developer has to know all that stuff to be able to flow through the code to find that. That's one of the most frustrating things where it's like, hey, it doesn't work on Edge, but it works in Chrome. Well, actually, that's kind of obvious, but it's like the weird thing is when it works in Edge, but it doesn't work in Chrome. And you're like, why? Yeah. What sorcery is this? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can remember a situation and this was on a this was on a website. This was not a PWA or anything where Safari on iPad was caching the results of HTTP post requests on one particular like minor version that lasted a few months. Huh. And you talk about a nightmare to track that down because people were just putting the thing in. Oh, it doesn't work. So we test it and it works. What do you mean it doesn't work? Yeah. And we did not have the QA infrastructure there to really go, hey, here's where the actual problem is. And bear in mind, when the, when the QA person has to track this stuff down, that takes time. If you're already understaffed and you go cross-plat, you are much, you know, you can double the number of QA people you have in some instances and be more understaffed. We had a thing not long ago with the the church website they asked me to take a look at where it was working right on one browser and not on a bunch of others. It's like weird, like it'd be like sometimes it would work right, sometimes it wouldn't. And what I tracked it down to was it was a caching issue. Yeah at the server side and is WordPress managed WordPress. So yeah, it was caching at the server side. And so the reason it was working on the one browser was because that's the browser that they went in on logged into and made the changes. And the reason it was partially working on another browser is because it was a different person who had been logged in for some of the changes and then had logged out. Uh, so your cache key included the user information. Yes. Yeah. Been there, done that. Thankfully, with managed WordPress, it had a very easy cache bust button. And I was like, 
it was easy enough to where I, once I figured it out, I took some screenshots and I'm like, hey guys, you know, if you want to avoid having to call me next time, just click this button and it'll fix the problem. Yeah. I do not mind helping out at all, but I know them. They had to have been working on it for hours before they called me. Yeah. So if I can like save them that time, you know, it's going to be better for everybody. So. And speaking of things that you need to save time on, when you release to multiple platforms, it's really unlikely that you're going to be able to release to all of them at exactly the same time. Yeah. You got differences in platform release cycles, store approval takes time. And even your own platform-specific issues can make it nearly impossible to get everything out at once. So you may release to Android one week and, hey, the Apple App Store took longer for it to get through and get approved. And so that comes out next week. That's why a lot of places will do soft launches or like... Treat it like a beta for the people that can. I know we don't really talk about game development. We ought to get someone on here to talk to us about game development because I know it's a whole different world. We did the little bit of talking about it before but look at the different platforms you got we were talking earlier i don't remember if it was on the aftercast which we recorded before or (laughs) or if it was on here but we were talking about um i think we did it on both yeah how like i'm a console gamer and you're more of a well linux gamer now but a pc gamer which linux is pc it's personal computer so that's pretty cool yeah (laughs) dad joke right there that was a dad joke but you are a dad, so that's fair. So, but I was thinking about the different. Um, I was reading an article about why Switch games are more expensive. It's because putting them in the cartridge costs more than putting it on a disc. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why also Nintendo does not allow digital content to be any less expensive than physical media. So yeah, if you you buy a game, it's going to be the same price if you get it digitally or if you get the physical thing. I believe at that rate, I'd always get the physical. <laughs> yeah, I like the convenience of digital and I'll just put it on a little flash drive. But I also like that, hey, I have the physical thing. If you know they don't allow me to use it unless it's like one of those games like Splatoon where it's got a server. But other than that, it doesn't matter. But no, I was thinking about pl- like developing for different platforms because um, that Harry Potter game, Hogwarts. Legacy. Yeah. Legacy, that's it. I knew it started yeah. with an L. I haven't played I've got a friend that that has and you know he likes it. Is it on PC yet? Has that come out for PC? I have no idea. So they, they released it for PS5 first. Yeah. And there's a lot of controversy around it. Not entirely versed on exactly what the whole deal there was. That's the only reason I know about it. I'm, I don't really care about Harry Potter much at all. I don't know. All I know is all the... It, it apparently takes place several hundred years before the books, but uh, all the... My coworkers who have PS5s are playing. And those of us who don't are like, well, we got to wait until it comes out on our platform. Yeah, and I mean, bear in mind, like if you release to a platform, like that's a lot of work. It's not just you. It's you know all your marketing people and you know, sales that may be involved. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so thinking that you can release all at once, I mean, that's not realistic for big companies even. Yeah. So it may not be realistic for you anyway, but it's something to think about. Mm-hmm. So guys, cross-platform applications offer a lot of advantages, both to developers and to the companies that employ them. 
That said, there are a number of pitfalls that you figure out after you've kind of worked on a few of these things. And the added complexity of these applications can often be difficult to see up front. You know, usually by the time you find something that is difficult or impossible to handle, you're already kind of well into sunk cost territory at best. However, a lot of the problems that you are going to encounter with any cross-platform application framework, you know, whether mobile or otherwise, are actually somewhat predictable. And if you know what the likely issues are going in, you can more effectively evaluate the risks they pose before you've invested in learning and using a cross-platform tool. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.